What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. What's going on, everybody? Happy Wednesday. Well, by the time you hear this Thursday, it's Kevin Valentin on this side. Kyle, what's going on, bro? I'm a little bit sore. I've been doing push-ups all day. Uh, just been chilling at home. Had a nice day off from work, but uh, yeah, my arms are a little bit sore just from doing all those goddamn push-ups. But other than that, I'm straight, bro. What about you? I'm good, man. Work was pretty chill. Um, kind of relaxing. Was able to get some stuff done around the house, but between lawn maintenance on the outside of Saba waking me up early, and then obviously they're doing renos at this apartment across from me, so he has been quite the entertaining pup today. Yeah, we might hear an occasional park here and there just because if they're still going on with the renovations outside, so might hear an occasional bark here and there, but at least you'll know Bear where it's coming us. from. But uh, outside of that, bro, we still got a bunch of first-round playoff games to go over. Pretty much at this point, we're going into game three for most of these series. As of right now, like while we're recording, there's still uh, some game twos to get to. Uh, we'll get to that later in the episode, but this will mostly uh, be focused on the game threes that we have taking place on Thursday and Friday. But outside of that, bro, it's mostly going to be NBA related. We got a one NFL topic to go over. Uh, it's in regards to Tua Tagovailoa. Obviously, if you guys remember from last year, Tua suffered a decent amount of concussions last year, missed a bunch of time because of that, ended up missing what, like the last two or three weeks of the regular season while he was in concussion protocol. Uh, he was talking to some of the uh, reporters uh, throughout uh, offseason what is it, OTAs right now, or is it like non-mandatory non-mandatory minicamps? Yeah, so uh, he was asked a couple of questions uh, at the press booth, or at the, what do you call it? Not a press booth. Podium? It's, yeah, the podium. Thank you. Um, about what happened last year and really the status of Tua going into this year. So that's something that we'll talk about at the end of the episode. But outside of that, you guys, uh, we'll go over those Thursday and Friday games. The first game we'll, we'll go over in the NBA will be the Kings and the Warriors. As of right now, the Kings are up 2-0 in that series after winning their first two home games against Golden State. After that, we'll kick it to the Clippers and Suns for their Game 3. Uh, the Suns came back in a pretty strong fashion in Game 2 to tie that series up 1-1 apiece. And then to, to kick it over to the Eastern Conference, we've got the Cavs and the Knicks, kind of similar to what I brought up with the Clippers and the Suns. Uh, the Cavs stormed back in Game 2 against the Knicks, really kind of gave them a beatdown in that game. And they tied that series up at one apiece as well. That series will transition to New York for game three. And when I mentioned the Clippers and the Suns, uh, that series will transition back to LA for game three. And then we'll just talk about some of the Thursday night games uh, to wrap up the NBA playoffs segment, if you just want to call it that. But let's get to it, Kev. Let's talk about this Kings and Warriors matchup for game three. Uh, like I said in the lead-up, uh, the Kings are up 2-0 in this series against Golden State. Golden State, they are the defending NBA champions from this past year, or from, not this past year, from last year, excuse me. And their backs are up against the wall. Uh, these games have been very competitive so far, but the Kings have been able to really close these fourth quarters very well. And despite the fact that you got Steph and Klay Thompson still knocking down pretty large volume of their shots, uh, it seems like the Kings are just finding ways to win these games late and come up with some huge buckets uh, to get them these wins. But now that the series is tr transitioning back to San Francisco at the Chase Center, 
it's going to get very interesting now that Golden State is going to be home for the next two games. And when it comes to Golden State, everything I think comes down to this game three because if they lose this one, they'd be down 3-0 in the series. And history says you're down 3-0 in a series. It's pretty much lights out after that. So, Kev, to get this one to you, how do you think this game three is going to go down between the Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors? Well, the looming narrative in this game is Draymond Green's suspension for the incident in game two. For those of you that did not see, uh, Draymond Green was pushing on a break underneath the Kings basket, and it looked to be that Demonis Sabonis had grabbed his ankle to where then Draymond proceeded to press on his chest. It looked like he stomped it out, but he was limited from being able to to move to where it was assessed as a technical foul for Sabonis and a common foul, as well as an ejection of a flagrant two foul for Draymond Green, again, who is now suspended for game three. We all know that Draymond Green is not going to fill up a stat sheet with 30, 40 points, but everything else that he does between being the the physical enforcer, the rebounder, the uh, the stretch five big that they run in that super small death lineup, as they like to reference it or refer to it as, uh, how he's able to bring the ball up court, distribute the basketball, and of course, just his defensive presence as a whole. When you take somebody like that away from the Warriors, who are already struggling to stop Malik Monk and uh, De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis from being effective on the offensive end, you're limited to what you're going to be able to do now. If you have to insert Kaminga, if you have to insert another guard, you're limited to what you can do if Sacramento decides to go big. So I'm very, very complex, or should I say, I'm very, very confused as to why Draymond got suspended, as if the act that DeMontis Sabonis wasn't warranted as a dirty play of its own, but that's neither here nor there. How Game 2 ended, obviously, Draymond gets ejected. Golden State still finds a way to tie the game. But again, Sacramento was just able to get more shots up. They were able to make some. And then Steph had a couple of turnovers. And here we are. It's 2-0. I'm not going to sit here and panic because Golden State is the worst road team in the NBA, if not one of the worst road teams. He's de- they're definitely the worst road team in the playoffs. Now, when you flip it to the other side, they're just as good on, on their home floor. They are the third best record at home, sitting at, if I'm not mistaken, 33-8 and at home, as opposed to 11-30 and on the road, which is just abysmal. I'm, I'm still going to, unfortunately, I'm still going to go out and I'm going to pick the Kings for Game 3 because the absence of Draymond and what he brings to the table just cannot be replaced, even through Golden State's deep bench. Jordan Poole has not played very well this series. He was one of seven last game. He's a defensive liability, and he's just not able to do anything when it comes to being on the floor on the opposite end. If it's not putting up 20, 30 points off the bench, we already know what he's going to give you on the defensive end. He's probably going to allow a decent amount of points uh, to the opposing person's guard, if not whoever he gets switched on. You're going to have to rely on Gary Payton Jr. Uh, He's going to get an increased amount of minutes because of Draymond's presence. Kaminga's going to get a lot of minutes at his young age as well, and I don't know if those players are going to be able to provide you what Draymond does as a unit. So Steph is going to have to step up and go for maybe 30-plus points. Clay and Wiggins, they've scored 20 in each of the last couple contests. They're going to have to go for 20-plus again, if not maybe push the, the envelope for 30. You're going to need to see people like DiVincenzo and Jordan Poole and Moody step up. I don't know, man. Golden State just doesn't look the same. They're putting up points when it matters, but they're not able to seal the deal. And defensively, they're just not looking very good. They allowed 41 points in the second quarter last game. So I'm very curious to see what adjustments they make. 
But with the Aaron Fox winning the Clutch Player of the Year, which is a new award in the NBA, and how much he has dominated this series thus far, as well as Malik Monk, I think that Sacramento is going to make a statement and potentially have the defending champions on the brink of elimination with a sweep. Kev, it's very difficult for me to pick this game just because, like you said, Golden State has been one of the best teams in the NBA at home this year. Their record reflects that. And even though that, like you said, they've been probably the worst road team that we've seen, not only in just the playoffs currently, but throughout the entire regular season. Even though that they've lost those last two games, they've been competitive nonetheless. And you make a couple buckets here and there, you get some stops on the defensive side. You know, maybe we're looking at a 1-1 series, but the Kings have been the team that they've been able to finish late in these fourth quarters, knock down some big buckets to get them these wins. And Golden State, they just can't get into a rhythm, especially late, to really close the gap and close the deficit because they're always playing catch-up. It's not as if Sacramento is the one playing catch-up where they're down 10, 15 points and they're making these huge fourth-quarter rallies. They had that similar situation in Game 3, not Game 3, in Game 1, but that was in the third quarter. In the fourth quarter, it was just back and forth. But I think when the series does transition back to San Francisco for Game 3, Kev, I'm with you. I'm going to go with the Kings on this one. But if they win this game, I think it's going to be by the skin of their teeth. I think it's going to be a very competitive game. So, you know, looking back at game two, game two was very competitive. You know, I thought that even though the Warriors lost that game, I thought they had some chances to win that one. But to me, the biggest factor was not De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk winning the game for Sacramento. It was their role players. I thought that Davion Mitchell, I thought that Harrison Barnes, those two in particular, they stepped up incredibly large in that game. And you you juxtapose it to what Golden State had. You know, I stepped at his thing. Clay did pretty good. Andrew Wiggins had a better night, even though that he missed some shots and some of those misses were pretty bad. It's just when you look at the biggest missing piece to this whole equation with Golden State, it's got to be Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole, like Kev said, has been struggling mightily throughout this whole series. And I think there is a chance for him to kind of reverse the trend going into Game 3 now that the series is back at home. I would expect him to have a better game than what he's been having the last two games. But he's got to get into a rhythm. And if he doesn't, which at this point, it's a high likelihood that you know maybe he's not going to get out of this funk that he's been in just because he looks like he's been out of sorts the entire playoff series so far we'll see what happens with Jordan but I still think that Steph's going to play well I still think that Clay and Andrew Wiggins are still going to put up decent chunks but I'm I'm just going to roll with Sacramento with what they have right now they have been the better team throughout this series so far and I granted the the margin of error is very slim for both teams but I, I think when it comes to the the errors that Golden State has committed the Kings have taken advantage of it and they've made the most of it De'Aaron Fox has been playing very consistently so far. Obviously, when you look at Malik Muck, he's a nice number two piece um, right alongside De'Aaron. And then I think Sabonis down low has really given Golden State fits throughout this series simply just because I don't think that Golden State could really handle just his overall size down low in the paint. And even though that when you look at the rebounding categories, it was essentially the same. Both Golden State and Sacramento had the same number of rebounds overall, but Sacramento did win the offensive rebounding 
uh, subcategory of that whole rebounding category. And I wouldn't be surprised with Draymond missing game three that that actually continues. And I wouldn't be surprised if Sacramento wins the rebounding side of things going into game three. You know, I think Golden State is going to really put all their chips into the middle of the table here and, and just go for it. Because if they go down 3-0, it's lights out for the series as far as I see it. But I'm going to roll with the Kings. I'm going to roll with the fact that, granted, they are younger. They have less playoff experience than what Golden State has. They've just been the better team so far in the first two games. But we'll see what happens. I mean, there's a very good chance that Golden State could get into rhythm and they could just you know, wipe the floor with the Kings in this game and make it a 2-1 series. There's a very good chance that Golden State could still win this game and make this a series. But I'm going to say that the Kings take a commanding 3-0 lead. And I think it's going to be off the backs of De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk. And then I think you could look at Sabonis. I think Sabonis is going to be huge for them. I think they're going to take advantage of the fact that Golden State's not going to have a lot of defensive. They're not going to have a defensive presence down low to be able to contain him. And I think if Kevin Herter and Davion Mitchell come up with some huge buckets alongside Harrison Barnes, I think that will get them to win. But I think it's going to be a very good game. And uh, if you guys get a chance to watch this one, definitely tune in because it's definitely going to be a fun game as far as I see it. I mean, the, the series has been entertaining. There have been very little series outside of the the, the one in the eighth seed or like the two in the seventh. We, we knew those games were going to be, as Kyle said, again, I continue to laugh like a toddler, but business games. And then uh, you have games like this or series like this where it's truly the power of two individual teams. They're both juggernauts in their own respective because of the barrage that Golden State can provide with their threes when they're hitting. And then the youth of Sacramento and the combination of that three-headed monster that people seem to continue to forget when Malik Monk gets it going. It's it's very, very, very complicated to stop him because you got to pick your poison. You let him pop off or you let De'Aaron go for 30-35 and then Sabonis is out here grabbing 20 and 15, 20 and 12. It's a, it's a hard poison to pick. I just want to touch on this one more time. I know I said I wouldn't get into it, but it has to be talked about. I think the NBA is getting a little crazy with the fact that Draymond is getting suspended because in the review as to why he got suspended, it also kind of like carried over into their reasoning of like, due to Draymond's previous behaviors with sportsmanship or misconduct or whatever the hell the terminology they used, the fact that that was leveraged in a decision is kind of crazy because what Jared Allen did to Julius Randle in game two of that game against the uh, against the Knicks, if that were Draymond, he would have been ejected. He would have been suspended. He would have been fined. Like For those of you that are unaware, it was a rough foul. Jared Allen uh, committed on Julius Randle in game two in Cleveland. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up. But there are questionable plays that happen on a daily basis, and you're going to sit here and you're going to tell me because of the action that Draymond took afterwards, which I do not condone, how are we going to discredit what Demonis Sabonis did to Draymond? He said he was protecting himself, but when he curled, he just happened to perfectly grab the back of Draymond's foot while his other hand grabbed the front. Now, if Draymond would have fell flat on his face and he would have gotten injured, we'd be having a whole different conversation. Shaquille O'Neal made the comment, if that were me, I would have done the same thing. This would have been a whole escapade. I mean, for God's sakes, if Shaq would have stomped on Demonis Sabonis' chest, we probably would have had charges brought up for murder because Shaq is 7'3", 300-plus pounds, so that's a whole other discussion. What I'm getting at is, if you're going to punish Draymond, you need to punish Sabonis. If you're going to punish Draymond because of previous antics, 
then there needs to be a mindfulness to pay attention because there were multiple situations to where Zabonis had some issues in game one as well where he was boxing out and he grabbed Clay Thompson and he threw him to the ground. There was another instance where Draymond's entering the ball, throwing the ball in on an inbounds play, and Zabonis puts himself in a situation where Draymond's already off balance trying to inbound and get back on offense to where he got bumped but he initiated the contact, and then Draymond fell. And then Draymond was called for a foul to where they had to challenge it, and Draymond was deemed innocent in that case. It really seems like what J.J. Redick had said today, that C- not Seattle, Sacramento is trying to entice Draymond Green to look bad and put him in tough situations. So if the NBA were to really look into this situation or look into these cases, you would see that Sabonis has done a fair share of his own questionable, dirty plays. Again, I'm using air quotes because those are not my words. I understand that what Draymond did was unacceptable. You do not stomp on someone. You are not in Dominican Sue and football and all these different cases. But Sabonis needs to be mindful of what he he's doing. It isn't fair. It isn't right. And it sure as shit isn't clean. The NBA, again, if they're going to throw the hammer at one person, you got to look the opposite way because Draymond didn't just decide to knock Sabonis over, step on his chest, and run back on offense. That was initiated because of Sabonis' actions, and I think that he needs to pay for his as well. I think one thing that we have to look at in particular with the whole Draymond situation, obviously when it comes to the foot stomp, visually it's very tough to see. Now, I'm of the mindset that Draymond was probably trying to get back in transition to help out the Warriors offensively. There's no doubt about that in my mind. It's just... When you visually watch the replay, and if you look at it from certain camera angles, it's tough because, I mean, it's a good stomp. And as far as I see it, I think the referees did get it right as far as visually, this is definitely worthy of a flagrant two. And they ended up kicking him out of the game. I think one component that we're missing when it comes to Draymond and what happened in that situation was... There was a point in time when they were reviewing the play. The referees were over by the scoring table and they were just reviewing the play and whether or not to issue it as a flagrant one or a flagrant two. During that time, you had Draymond chirping with a bunch of the Sacramento King fans. And, you know, I know that you were saying that Sacramento could be enticing Draymond to look bad just if there's a certain instance where Draymond does something and then. The fans are kind of gassing him up to try to get him into a point where he throws, you know, p- potentially there's a technical thrown his way, or in this case, he ends up getting thrown out of the game. But, you know, Draymond really didn't help himself in that situation just because he was, he was chirping up a good little storm with some of those fans that were really only two or three rows behind Golden State's bench. And then there's another thing that you have to kind of factor into that game as well. Adam Silver was at that game. So... You know, obviously, I know that Draymond's had a history of making some poor decisions with his lower body because we could look back to Steven Adams. Steven Adams was one of those guys who unfortunately got hit in the nuts twice by Draymond uh, back in the day. And even though that they factored that into the suspension, I'm a little bit iffy on that one. I think using that as leverage to suspend him for for game three is a little bit of a cop-out. I think the appropriate measure was to throw him out of the game because I think that was definitely warranted. But honestly, I think they should have just left it at that. Agreed. Um, It's just one of those things. Draymond is a hothead. 
you know, Draymond before even the season started. He punched Jordan Poole in the face during practice. So, you know, it's just, I think one thing we have to focus on with Draymond is he is kind of a double-edged sword. He is that enforcer that comes with Golden State, and that could be great because that's just somebody that you don't want to go up against if you're playing against the Warriors. But when he just loses, I'm not going to say loses his mind, but if he just loses himself because of the heat of the competition, heat of the game, you know, things like this can happen. And now that they're not going to have him for game three, that's a disadvantage that Golden State's going to have to deal with. And this isn't the first time that Golden State's had to deal with Draymond missing a really important game. Just a couple years ago, Draymond got suspended for game six in the NBA Finals, the year that they went, what, 73-9? and nine? They were one game away from essentially being arguably the greatest team in NBA history. And I think it was game what, five he got suspended because it was three one. I thought he I thought he got um I thought he got thrown out of game five and missed game six. Because that was the one because the game was back in Cleveland. Yeah. So then yeah, that was game four then. Yeah. It was game five. Game five. Five. And then he no, missed if it was game, game five, it would be if it was game five, it would be in uh it would be in uh Golden State. Because oh, it, it wasn't two three, it wasn't two three one one. It was two two one one one. Did he really miss game four? No, like, he got they, ejected they, in game four and got and he missed game five. If it was in Cleveland, it was two games in Golden oh, State, two games in Cleveland, and then it was yeah, one game we'll go, in Golden State. Regardless, we'll, it doesn't make a difference. It's but not the but first either time. Way, but either way, it's just one of those things that you know you need Draymond in a pivotal game here, and now you're not going to have him and. Golden State's going to have to overcome that somehow. It's just... I think they, stability is availability like we I, talked I about. I think they went a little bit too far with the suspension, but it's not as if I don't understand where they're coming from. Draymond yeah. has been known to do that in the past, but... Got to set a precedent. I, I, I think... Example. He set the precedent a while ago, though. Punched LeBron yeah. in the nuts. No, I meant so. the NBA has to, like... They cannot let that slide in the playoffs, especially the first round with the commissioner there, like you said. I think his antics to the crowd... I think he knew he was getting ejected. There's no way he did it. Probably. I, I, I know for a fact he was like, bro, if they've suspended me for, for other things, they're going to throw me out. So he just, he was like, screw uh, it. Uh, I'm going to rile up some people. I'm going to piss some people off. You, you know, the crazy thing is you don't really have anybody step into Draymond, though. Say, hey, bro, you need to chill out. The only one no. I could think that maybe would say something is probably Andre Iguodala. Or Steph. Be like, yo, chill. It's like, it's like, hey, dude, we're going to need you. It's it's, it's either that Steph or just... did look ticked off. Like when Draymond yeah. got tossed, he was just sitting there with his mouthpiece like, come on, like really? It's like, all right. It's like, I got to deal with this Here again. Here we go but... again. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes. But outside of that, uh, we got another game to get to. Uh, the next one will be the Clippers and the Suns. Uh, can you get this one to me? Yeah, of course. Uh, so Phoenix ties the series. 1-1. They're headed back to L.A., and they are led by Kevin Durant. They are led. They are led by Devin Booker popping off at 38. And Chris Paul seemed to have found his stride later in the game. And obviously, Phoenix takes control. And it looks like the momentum has somewhat kind of evened itself out. So, Kyle, with this series headed back to L.A., Kawhi Leonard popping off in both games. What do you think the outcome of Game Three is going to be? I'm actually going to go with the Clippers on this one. Um, I think with this series going back to L.A. for Game Three. 
I think they're going to learn from their mistakes that they made in game two. Um, the biggest mistake to me when I look at the Clippers that they unfortunately had to deal with in game two was they allowed the Suns to just get back into this huge rhythm late in the first half. Because really, I would say for about a quarter and a half in the first half, it seems like the Clippers were just maintaining pace and keeping the Suns at a distant deficit, somewhere around, you know, five to seven, eight points. And then the Suns really went on this huge stretch at the end of the first half. And it was capped off by Devin Booker hitting, hitting a huge three-point shot that ended up tying the game, I believe, at 59 apiece. And then pretty much once the third quarter started, the Suns just kept their foot on the pedal. And that was despite the fact that DeAndre Ayton got into foul trouble. Ayton had five fouls in the third quarter. And he sat a long time before he eventually came back into the game. And you know, don't get me wrong, Kawhi was hitting the shots. You had Russell Westbrook hitting shots. But at the end of the day, it just wasn't enough. And it just it didn't seem like when the Clippers needed to hit their shots, they just couldn't knock them down. You compare that to game one. I, game one, I thought they were far more efficient. And when they got their open three-point shots, they were able to knock them down. Just wasn't able to do it. Uh, they weren't able to do it in game two. I think going into game three, now that they're back home, I think they will be able to hit those open three-point opportunities that they fell short in in game two. I think at this point, it goes without saying that Kawhi is going to probably get somewhere around 30 to 35 points. Uh, even though the Clippers lost game two, I thought he was still extremely effective. Dropped over 30 points. Just There are times where when he gets the rock, he gets just a little bit of separation or a little bit of space against his defender, he could just rise up and knock down his shots. It doesn't even matter if he gets a spot. He's extremely effective at the mid-range game, and he could hit those three-point shots as well. I think another factor that we have to look look at with the Clippers here is Russell Westbrook. Obviously, Westbrook had a huge game too, and I think that's going to continue going into game three. He almost had 30 points by himself in that game too. He had 28. He was only two points away from 30. And I think the one thing with him is that if he's given those opportunities to be able to get those one-on-one matchups and just speed by whoever's defending him, I think he's going to be able to do it well. Did it well in game two. Now that the series is back in LA, I think he'll be able to take advantage of those one-on-one matchups and probably get somewhere around 20, potentially 25 points once again. I think that he's shown me that he's taken advantage of the situation with the Clippers and he's made the most of it. And I think that he could do wonders for the Clippers going into game three. And I think really what it comes down to it is defensively, they're going to have to step up because we look back at game two, the Suns took advantage of that Clippers defense. And it seemed like in game two, Kevin Durant was able to get get to his spots more effectively. Devin Booker was able to get to his spots more effectively. Even Chris Paul was able to get to his spots more effectively the shots that the Suns missed in game one, they made in game two. That's going to require a defensive switch up in game three from the Clippers if they're going to want to win this game. So I do expect this game to be competitive. This is going to be a fun one. I think this whole series is going to be a fun one. There's no doubt in my mind this series is going at least six games, potentially seven. But I think in this occasion, I think the LA is going to be able to get this game three, get up 2-1 in the series. And I think it's really going to be off the backs of Kawhi Leonard, I think Russ is going to have a good game. And I, when it comes to their role players, I think you have to look at Nicholas Batum, Eric Gordon, and Norman Powell. I think those three in particular 
those guys are going to step up. I wouldn't be surprised if you combine all three of those guys and the points that they're going to accrue. I think it's probably going to be somewhere around 40 to 45 points. I think if they split about 15 to 20 each, 20 would be a little bit high. But if they can average somewhere in between about 15 to 20 points in this game alongside with what Kawhi and Russ are going to do, I think it would be enough to give the Clippers a close win against the Suns. I think this is going to be probably about a two or three possession game when it comes down, when all, when the clock hits triple zeros. But I'm going to go with the Clippers in this one in game three. I'm actually going the opposite way. I think that the key factor here is DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre Ayton got into an incredible rhythm at some point. I don't remember if it was before halftime in the second quarter or as the third quarter began, but he had hit two or three consecutive shots at the free throw line. Um, Back to back to back, he was getting boards, he was hustling, he was getting on defense, he was just really getting after it, and his energy just seemed to be completely different than in game one. Zubac, obviously, we already know last game had over 14 points, he had a double-double, and now in this game, you're looking at Zubac, and he was only able to get six boards and eight points. So Aiton did what he needed to do, but I mean, Nicholas Batum, he's got to be more involved in the offense as well. I know, again, he's not known to necessarily go out there and give you 15, 20 points anymore. Like in his Portland days, he had zero points. Eric Gordon was 4-12 from the field. He was ineffective. And obviously, Russell Westbrook stepped up in a massive way going over for, going for 28 with 5-on-5. Five five. But that's not somebody that you need to go crazy because if he's off or if he's not efficient like he was in game one, there are plenty of other instances to where he can contribute, whether that's rebounding the basketball or passing. So I, I would expect the Clippers team to bounce back from an overall standpoint, especially from Terrence Mann as well. He only had 10. He only took three shots, but it was very efficient in the way that he did. The Clippers need to find a way to get points from their supporting cast outside of Kawhi Leonard and Russell Westbrook. So when you talk about Phoenix now, like I started with DeAndre Ayton, He's got to continue to get fed that way. The man can hit 15, 17-foot shots in the occasional corner three as well, if, if given the time and the opportunity. So if he can get you 15, 20 points, 10 boards, 12 boards, a block or two, you get him incorporated in this offense at a consistent enough clip, I think that on top of what Devin and KD are going to provide you, and if Chris Paul is able to contribute, that is a successful formula. We already know that the Phoenix Suns do not have depth on the bench, especially without... Cameron Payne, who is questionable in game three, who missed the first two, you're going to need some assistance. And if your big can give you that solidified second, excuse me, third, fourth option when Chris Paul's having an off night, that takes a lot of pressure off KD and Devin Booker because when you run that pick and roll, you cannot collapse on Devin Booker. You cannot collapse on Kevin Durant because when you double him, that you got somebody rolling to the basket, and you don't necessarily need to have DeAndre Ayton getting a layup, getting an alley-oop, or somebody that is inefficient at shooting the basketball because he can spread the floor and actually shoot and hit that mid-range jump shot. So for me, I think going to L.A., understanding the formula that is going to, at least what worked in Game 2, I think KD is going to go for one of those big games where he just absolutely annihilates a defense. KD has gone for 27 and now 25 I'm waiting for that 30-point barrage that KD just looks completely unguardable and unstoppable because there are instances, like Stan Van Gundy said, where KD's not getting enough shots. He's not getting looked at in crunch time. And I understand that this is Devin Booker's team to an extent, but when you go out and you trade for a, a Kevin Durant caliber type of player, when you go and you get one of the best generational talents that we've ever seen in the NBA, one of the best scorers, if not the best scorer, depending on who you ask in NBA history, just because, again... Size, handle, jump shot, his ability to get to the basket, 
finishing at the free throw line. He is probably the best overall scorer the NBA has ever seen in terms of fluidity. You have to give him the ball in those situations. It doesn't matter whose team it is. You go and you trade your whole team and its future for one person, he's got to get incorporated a lot faster. They did a better job of it in game two, but again, with a similar output of 25 and 27, you need KD in close games to go out there and separate himself from the competition. He was guarded by Kawhi Leonard in a lot of situations. I think Monty Williams put him in a successful a successful situation in itself when you go and you set those pick and rolls to get a switch. KD's got to get involved more if you want to win on the road. Again, Devin Booker had an incredible game, but to really, really solidify yourself, put a statement on this and take a, take away home court just like you, the Clippers did from you. KD's got to go for 30-35, and obviously the rest of the supporting cast needs to as well. But I'm really looking at DeAndre Ayton to remain confident. Monty's going to get him involved, and if he can, again, average anywhere from 20 to 25, excuse me, 15 to 20 points, I think this series is going to shift into the Phoenix Suns' favor. I think the one thing I could look back to with that game, too, was... Obviously, Dev just had a huge game, too. Almost had 40 points yeah, he, he couldn't by himself. Go. He was incredible. But, but the way that I see it was the shots that the Suns missed in game one, they made in game two. I, Chris Paul got into a rhythm after missing his first few shots. KD just looked a little bit more comfortable uh, in the rotation. Dropped 25 points. I mean, granted, we know that KD can drop 30, 40 points on anybody. But it seemed like he was a little bit more comfortable just in the overall movement of the offense. But somebody that, that I think that we need to focus on when it comes to the Suns is Torrey Craig. Torrey Craig in these first two games of the series has been nothing but phenomenal. Dropped over 20 points. Yeah, dropped over 20 points in the first game. He hit five threes in game two. Just overall, he has really provided that three-point spark just from a role-player perspective when it comes to the Suns. And they're definitely going to need that. I think depending on whether campaign comes back for game three, that could definitely help out the bench depth when it comes to the Suns, just because Kev, it's a it's a who's who right now it's, coming it's, off it's the bench. Slim I mean, pickings. Yeah, so you know, I know Biombo gets some time out there. You have Josh Okogie that can knock down some occasional shots, but I think if you get campaign back in that rotation, uh, that would pro- provide a pretty big spark coming off the bench. But you know, I picked the Clippers, and I think. What they're going to do is that they're going to make the defensive switches to be able to... You brought up DeAndre Ayton. I thought Ayton had a fantastic game, too, especially from that mid-range jumper, like right above the free throw line. He was knocking down those shots all night. Automatic. I, I think I think the Suns, um, they're not going to be as... How do I say this? They're not going to have the availability to get those wide-open shots that DeAndre was able to get in game two, because I think, I think the Clippers are going to make some defensive adjustments that may mean that Zubak might be a little bit farther out to be able to defend Aiton a little bit more effectively, just because they just gave him too much space to work with. And, you know, I think the one thing that they're going to have to do is they're going to have to roll these double teams off of Kevin Durant a little bit more sporadically. Cause I think the Clippers are scared to death of Kevin Durant. And, you know, anybody, wonder, right? but, you know, you double Kevin Durant, it's going to leave some guys open for some opportunities. Dev Booker took advantage of it. I thought Chris took advantage of it. You know, it, it's one of these things that I think when it comes to the Clippers, they're going to have to be able to figure out a solid enough defensive rotation to where, you know, some guy on the Suns, whether it be KD or Dev or hell, even Aiton, don't just get on this huge hot streak and just take over the game, you know, because Aiton definitely helped them out 
uh, early on in that game when the Suns were trying to get back into the game uh, before the end of the first half. And then Dev just took over. Dev basically took over that second half. And then I thought Chris Paul, especially in the fourth quarter, he was able to knock down some big shots. So it's not like it's going to come easy for the Clippers. The Clippers are definitely going to have to find a defensive. They're just going to have to work on their switches a little bit better. Just their overall. I just say their overall one-on-one coverage. It's just going to have to be better if they're playing if they're playing man. Then, you know, if they're playing zone, it's just going to have to be the right that spot. Hole. Yep. So, but I still believe that Kawhi's going to be able to drop probably somewhere around 30, 35 points. It's just going to come down to whether or not these role players for the Clippers can hit their three-point shots. I think Batum's going to have a better game. I think Eric Gordon's going to have a better game. And I still think that Russ is going to be huge for them. I think he's got a very good chance to put up 20, 25 points. We'll just figure it out whether or not it's enough for the Clippers in that case. But nonetheless, it's going to be a very competitive game three back in LA. So with that said, we are going to transition to a Friday night game for this next game three that we're going to go over. And that is going to be the New York Knicks and the Cleveland Cavaliers. So to kick it back to game two, the Cavs just dominated the Knicks uh, in game two back in Cleveland. They won by the score of 107 to 90. Kevin got so bad at one point, the Knicks were down 30 points. It was just an absolute runaway of a game. And, you know, with the series 1-1 apiece, with the series going back to New York, it's definitely going to be a fun game three as far as I see it, especially with what the performances that we've seen in this series so far have been. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, we've got game three back in the garden between the Knicks and the Cavs. Who do you think is going to come out on top and why? Man, I hate picking against them. I do, but I'm sticking with my prediction. I think Cleveland does it again. Not necessarily a blowout, but I think the Cavaliers have figured out the formula to figuring the Knicks out. I mean, Josh Hart is playing injured, so he wasn't as effective as he once was in game one with a sprained left ankle. But we're looking at the same stat line that we did before. Julius Randle, 8 of 26 turnovers. R.J. Barrett, he was 4 of 12 in game one. He was... 4 of 13 in game 2, 14 points. It is just the Knicks are inefficient at getting good looks. They missed some open shots, but at the same time they weren't able to knock down the the uh they weren't able to knock down the open looks either. Excuse me. I meant to say they took some difficult shots, but they also had some open looks that they couldn't capitalize as well. There were just a lot of unnecessary situations to where shots were forced, the Knicks couldn't penetrate, Jared Allen was protecting the rim, and again when shots were falling for Cleveland and not on the other side, confidence left the Knicks. Obviously, the, the momentum of the game, the crowd just took over, and the Knicks just could not get to the uh, could not get to the strike. I mean, if I'm looking at this correctly, they shot 29. No, excuse me. I'm actually completely incorrect. They had 30 free throws. They got to the free throw line, and that still wasn't enough. They took 30 free throws and made 25. I meant to say they couldn't shoot efficiently from the three-point line. That's the number I was looking at. They shot 24% from three, 36% from the field. That is not how you win playoff basketball games. I just don't understand what they were expecting to get from this because Darius Garland took over this game. Normally, that would be Donovan Mitchell's role, but I guess he heard. He didn't go out there. He didn't play 40-plus minutes. He didn't take 30-plus shots. He only took 11 shots and scored 17 points. That's because Darius Garland went out there and dropped 32. That's because Chris LeVert came off the bench playing 40 minutes, and he dropped 24. That's because, obviously, you go and you look at Mobley, he played a little bit better, a little bit more efficiently. He had a couple steals, a couple blocks. He played. Th- uh, he had 13 boards, 13 points. He did what he needed to do. The role players of the, the Cleveland Cavaliers stepped up in every way you needed them to. Whereas on the Knicks' side... 
Emmanuel quickly had a better game than in the game one. He had 12, but Josh Hart had five. Obi Toppin had seven. Quinn Grimes had four. Mitchell Robinson had two. These are not how you win. I'm looking at R.J. Barrett. I'm saying you were the number three overall pick. You just got paid, and you cannot hit a ball if you were on the beach and had to throw it into the ocean. That's how bad you're playing. Knicks fans, as I've heard, as I've seen, and as I've texted people, they're not happy with R.J. Barrett. They called him the king of New York. They called him our future. Where is he at? He has not performed in both postseason appearances that he has had. Julius Randle, when are we going to stop giving him excuses? Did he have 22 points and eight rebounds? Yes. Six turnovers? Why are you bringing the ball up as consistently as you do? This is not going to fly in the regular, excuse me, in the postseason. It just doesn't work that way. When you're guarded by bigger, more physical opponents and even the younger, quickly Mobley, I don't know how you're going to consistently try to bully yourself into the, into the post. Eight of 20. Outside, you, you, you took the most shots on this team. You had 22 points on 20 shots. People used to give Kobe hell when he would have 36 on 32 shot attempts. Where is that same slander for Julius Randle? Are you going back to the Garden? Absolutely. Are you going to have an electric crowd? 100%. But if this game goes south, that electric crowd will turn against you in a millisecond. They're going to start cheering for damn Cleveland because that's just how New York fans are. You need to be careful that this doesn't get away from you and you guys knock down those looks because if not, the New York Knicks are going to be in the same situation that they were in against the Hawks a few years ago where they won the first game. The crowd went crazy. Obviously, New York went off talking all this shit and they weren't able to back it up. I expect Jalen Brunson to play better. I expect Josh Hart to play a little bit better despite the injury. I expect Julius Randle to find a way to turn it around. Somehow, I keep having hope. But for R.J. Barrett and what you've shown me in your two playoff appearances, it ain't looking good, Chief. If you continue this poor performance and the Knicks lose in the postseason again and you didn't have the greatest regular season, don't be surprised R.J. Barrett might get moved this offseason. I know he just got the contract, but that's not what they looked for when they gave you that bag. So... The Knicks have a lot of question marks going into game three, but I got Cleveland winning this one in the garden. Yeah, in this case, I agree with you, Kev. I'm going to go with the Cavs as well. Just just the night and day difference that we saw from game one to game two from Cleveland was very stark. Uh, it just seemed to me in game two, they finally got their footing, right? It seemed like they were just going too fast in game one. And I think the pace of the game going into game two was much more suited to what they're accustomed to. And... It's like I said, bro, the Cavs were damn near up, if not 30 points at one point against the Knicks. I understand that the final box score was 107 to 90, but Kev, we were talking about that game too when it was happening. It was like, it was a wrap basically by the end of the third quarter. Like there was no way the Knicks were coming back. Now going into game three, I do believe that the Knicks are going to get off to a better start than they did in game two. Just because in game two, Kev, that second quarter, was abysmal by New York. They got doubled up 34 to 17 in just that quarter alone. So, you know, when it comes to the Knicks, they definitely have to be on their P's and Q's going into game three. Because if not, going down 2 1, granted, they would have another home game after that. It's not a position you want to be in. And, you know, this all kind of is in part just to what Cleveland did so effectively in game two. They were just knocking down their three point shots very consistently. If you go into a game and you could shoot somewhere around 35 to 40% behind the three-point line, 
typically you're putting about 25, 33 point attempts up a game. If you're near that mark or if you're above that, you take that every game you get. And they shot over 42% from the field. That was a huge difference in this game to me because you know you juxtapose it with New York. New York only shot 24% behind the three-point line. They hit seven out of 29 threes, like Kevin said. And the Cavs doubled them up. The Cavs hit 14 threes in that game. And that was despite the fact that Kevin just alluded to the free throw disparity between both New York and Cleveland. You know, New York definitely had the free throw advantage, but you know, you have a seven three-point uh, advantage going against you if you're New York, just because Cleveland was knocking them down left and right. You know, that was the outcome, unfortunately, for New York in game two. Now, I do think this game three will be more competitive than we what we saw in game two. I just believe that when it comes to we can look at New York, for example. Emmanuel quickly definitely needs to have a better performance going into game three. Had a better performance in game two, but we know that Emmanuel quickly could get somewhere around 20, 25 points a game. And I think this could be one of those games where he finally steps up and has one of those performances. But, you know, Jalen Brunson still needs to be able to knock down a high number of his shots. The same goes to Julius Randle. And like Kevin said, RJ needs to do the same. If they're not getting these decent contributions going up against Cleveland, and Cleveland has a very good chance to be able to really knock down some shots behind the three-point line, you know, this could be staring at a 2-1 deficit here. And I know I've talked a lot about New York, uh, and I picked the Cavs, but that's just because the Cavs just blew the doors off of the Knicks in Game 2. So the adjustment to me is more related to New York. If New York does not make the proper adjustments going into Game 3, then they're going to suffer the same fate that they had in game two, uh, going into game three. You know, I do believe that, you know, with Donovan Mitchell being at the Garden, you know, this was one of the most coveted places that Knicks fans wanted Mitchell. They wanted Donovan to be a New York Knick and ended up going to Cleveland. And I think that Donovan's going to be in that space where it's like, well, this is what you could have had. I think he's going to go out there, probably drop somewhere around 30, 35 points. I think he has a very good chance to take this game over. And really dazzle that New York crowd, especially when he gets into a rhythm. I think another thing that we have to look at is, is Darius Garland going to have a similar type of performance that he had in game two? I think he's still going to be effective. I don't know if he's going to drop over 30 points, but I think if he drops somewhere around 2025, I think it's going to immensely help them out going into New York. And I think just one more piece of the puzzle when it comes to Cleveland, you know, it's going to be their bigs. Evan Mobley and Jared Allen, these two in particular, they stepped up, especially Evan Mobley. Uh, I said after game one that Mobley was just out of sorts that entire game one, but he came back strong in that game two. Definitely made a more uh, focused effort in game two and really had some good stretches in that game. Damn near played 40 minutes. I think that he's going to get a similar type of burn. I think he's going to have a similar type of performance. And if he does that, if, if Cleveland is able to establish just the paint area, that they were able to establish in game two. That was something that they really struggled in game one. I think that the Cavs will get into a consistent rhythm in this game. And I think when it's all said and done, I think the Cavs will be up 2-1 in this series going into game four. It's just, I like the momentum that the Cavs are building off of right now, especially just whooping on the Knicks in game two. I think I'm going to side with them in this one. I still think it's going to be a competitive game nonetheless. I think the Knicks will get it off to a better start. And it's going to just be a back and forth affair throughout the rest of the game. But I think when we get into these fourth quarter stages, especially late in the fourth, 
I think the the Knicks are going to be the ones, unfortunately, missing their shots. And I think the Cavs are going to be able to knock down some critical shots that are going to get them this win to bump them up to a 2-1 to one series advantage in favor of Cleveland. I don't really have much else to say other than it's kind of funny how history is kind of repeating itself. Like, that they won game one against the Hawks. New York went nuts. They fell short, and they got gentlemen swept on the way back. It's like, yeah, is this about to happen again? Like, is this really, like... This is what people want to do. Is this what New York Knicks fans want? They had another great year. They got a, a superstar that no one thought was going to pan out. And you're getting a regression from your, 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 your first draft choice just a few years ago that you just gave an extension to who has shown you two things this year. Not worth the contract, and he can't shoot. He's supposed to be their 3 and D player because he is more than average at being able to defend most opponents. R.J. Barrett, when locked in, we've seen him play very, very good defense on some pretty good opponents. But if you can't knock down a shot on the other end, you're no better than Tony Allen at this point. And that's no disrespect to Tony Allen's Hall of Fame career. Good good defensive player, bro. Because he's one of the best on-ball defenders I have ever seen in our lifetime. And for those of you that don't know who it is, you're probably too young for this. You Go look him up yourself. R.J. Barrett can't even hit the occasional three-point shot. He is completely unreliable at this point. If it's not finishing on his left hand at the rim, I'm leaving it open. You're making fun of Westbrook. People make fun of Westbrook, right? R.J. Barrett ain't much damn better the way that he's playing as of late, especially in the playoffs. You know, so, you know the- like I said, that's just one thing I'm looking at, man, is is history really going to repeat itself again for Knicks fans? God, the way that you were describing R.J. Barrett there for a minute, I thought you were talking about Ben Simmons. Can't hit a three-point <laughs> shot. Wants to drive into the paint, drive into the rim. See, but I don't think RJ's scared to drive. I don't think he's scared of contact. We all know that Ben Simmons just passes out of layups for whatever reason or did. And I'm not going to give Ben Simmons any attention. I've said his name too many times at this point. So we're going to move on because I just don't like him. We are going to move on into the remaining schedule for the NBA playoffs in the next few days. So obviously you guys will be hearing this on Thursday, which means that you guys already know that Thursday's slate, we already talked about Suns and Clippers, which means the 76ers and the Nets are due up for their third game in Brooklyn. And obviously Friday, there's going to be the other games that we had mentioned. So the Knicks get their matchup again, but the Celtics and the Hawks go for game three, and the Nuggets and the Timberwolves go for game three as well. As Denver... Wait a minute. It's on Friday. Yeah, that's what I said, Friday. Oh, because Denver plays tonight. Excuse me, I was was freaking out. I was like, how are they only on game three? But the series says 1-0, my bad. Yeah. So, yeah, we're going to talk about Thursday's one game. So the 76ers and the Nets, Kyle, we're not going to go into a full divergence of what we think is going to happen, but can can Brooklyn find a way to scrummage up at least one against Philly? I don't think so. It's just Don't get me wrong. I, I love what Mikhail Bridges has done in his time with the Nets. I think, I think going into this offseason, there's going to have to be a legitimate conversation about what is Mikhail Bridges' arc in the NBA? Because obviously... You know, he's playing like third or fourth fiddle in the rotation out in Phoenix. But you put him in a situation where he's running the show in Brooklyn. Kev, he has the potential to be that number one guy moving forward in Brooklyn. But, you know, you compare that to what the 76ers have. The 76ers are just too stacked across the board. It's just, you've got Joel Embiid, you've got James Harden, you've got Tobias Harris, who's actually been playing pretty well so far uh, in this playoff series. For Philly, and then you got Tyrese Maxey on top of it. It's just, it just seems to me like this series is just going to head in either a sweep or a gentleman's sweep. And 
if this is the one game that the Nets could potentially win, it's probably going to be this one because I think if they lose this one, I think they get swept. I think it's just as simple as that. It's just, to me, you know, the 76ers are head and shoulders better than them. And it has played out in this series. These have been very business-like wins for the 76ers so far. And I think the same will continue. I know you get a kick out of it. I don't know why, I bro. I find it to be hilarious. It, bro, it's just business as usual. They're just This will just be a road trip for them. And they're going to handle their business. And I think they win this game three. I'm trying to think of like if it's going to be a blowout or if it's going to be competitive. I think this will be a little bit more competitive just because Brooklyn's going to be at home. They got to show some respect to their fans that are showing up in that playoff environment. But I still think, you know, when we get to that fourth quarter and this game is relatively close, hypothetically, I'm going with the 76ers. I think the 76ers led by Joel Embiid. It's going to be too much for the Nets to handle. And I think they win that game three. I don't know, man. Philly was down for a good portion of this game. Yeah. In the in, in the first half, a little bit into the third quarter, and then for whatever reason, Brooklyn just fell apart because I'm pretty sure Brooklyn was down double digits. And even one of my boys, shout out to Brian, um, he actually turned the game off. He was like, we just look out of sorts. Like, Brooklyn's actually hitting their shots. And, you know, like, we'll give them this one. We'll take them out in Brooklyn. And then they come back, and we're actually playing Call of Duty that night. <laughs> he, he says in the Discord, he was like, oh, shit, we actually came back and won. And it, it, the definition of Philly fans, bro, if it's not an immediate win, they're just... I don't know. Sometimes no they dip. just kind of check no, out. Yeah. No dip, yeah. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, obviously we know that Joel Embiid is probably the most dominant player in this series. It's not close. It's not remotely even discussable. Not discussable. It's not even a word. It's not even to be discussed. I think Joel Embiid goes and has probably one of his best games of the series, but the supporting cast may have an off one. I just, I think that the head coach, I forget his first name, Vaughn of the Nets is going to... I think it's Jacques Vaughn. Jacques Vaughn. I think he's going to find a way to change the narrative in this situation. You have a couple of gritty players. You have a couple of tough defenders. I think that with Brooklyn being home, they're going to make this a little bit more competitive. And I think, at least I hope, Brooklyn is going to be able to at least take one of the next two games. I'm going to give them this one because they have a successful formula to build on from what happened in game two. Again, they were up for a while. They were hitting shots. Mikel Bridges played well. And if he continues to play this well, and the supporting cash just gives them a little bit more help. They can actually come out with a victory. Now, I agree with Kyle. It's probably either going to be liter- literally a sweep or a gentleman sweep. I don't see them getting more than one game. But if any game was to happen, it has to be this one. They yeah. know what to do. And if they can find a way to get Joel Embiid in foul trouble, get him off the floor, that puts pressure on their shooters. We all know that James Harden is still James Harden, but he's not going to go out there and drop no 50-point game. So you got to hope that some people miss some shots, play some good defense. But again... If it's going to be a game, it's got to be this one. I got Brooklyn winning in game three and at least making this somewhat competitive. Yeah, I think just for me, the way that I see it, if if Brooklyn is going to get one in this series, it is going to be this game. But I think I'm more banking on the idea that the 76ers are going to sweep, dude. Probably. Either, Sadly, because I, I, I like I like Mikel Bridges. Despite his yeah, choice in, in colleges, I think that Mikel Bridges is a very good player. Yeah, he's made the most of his opportunity in Brooklyn. There's no doubt about that, but I just think that Philly's too deep to deal with. So, yeah, too much depth. Uh, what's the next game that you want to go over? Next game was going to be the Friday games, which was two Celtics and Hawks. I'm not wasting my time with that one. That's a sweep. Can we both agree on that one? Yeah, 100%. That those, one's gone. Those, those first two games have been just, they've been snooze fest as far as I see it, which is perfect for Boston. You know, yeah. that, that's a situation you want to be in. But with Atlanta, it's just, it's just not enough. 
Exactly. So, I mean, I'm not even going to talk about game three of the Timberwolves series because Maybe it, game, game two, two didn't even happen yet. So it's, game two is tonight. So I'm, I'm hold on. Let me look at Wednesday night because I'm literally sitting here. That's, that's tonight. Tonight. That's what I said. Wednesday night, tonight. Which is Lakers, Grizzlies, Heat, Bucks, and then Nuggets, Timberwolves. Lakers, game two. John Moran questionable. What do you got? Ugh, this is a tough one. I'm actually going to go with the Lakers on this one. I think they're going to go up 2-0 in this series. I think when it comes to Ja, I think he is going to play in this game. Just because if there's a 50-50 chance that he is available to play, I think he's going to hit the floor. I think the question for me is how effective is he going to be? And Kev, which hand did he fall on? Was it his shooting hand that he fell on in that fourth quarter? Because I remember he went up like he was going for a layup, and then I think he fell on his shooting hand. I could be wrong, but nonetheless. Right. Yeah. Shooting so hand. That's a shooting hand. I think it is going to impact him to a certain extent just because I guarantee you this. I imagine who's ever doing the broadcast, whether it's TNT or ESPN, they are going to have multiple camera angles on his hand throughout the course of the game. And they're going to question on whether or not that it's going to play a significant factor, whether or not that he plays at a high level or not. Let's say that he plays. I think that he's going to go out there and probably still drop around 20 points just because Ja can do that simply just by driving to the rim and just using his athleticism as we've always seen him use it as. I think the question for me is, can they get a similar type of production from Jaron Jackson Jr.? Jaron Jackson dropped over 30 points in the last game. And it seemed to me, had Ja stayed in that game, he was probably on his way to getting probably about a 35, damn near 40-point performance. It just all the wind in their sails were just gone after that uh, injury that Ja sustained. And also, we're going to have to see some other guys step up. You're going to have to see Desmond Bain step up. You're going to have to see Tyus Jones step up. Uh, Dylan Brooks. These guys are going to have to step up and make their shots. Unfortunately, they just didn't do that at a high enough clip to be able to win against the Lakers in game one. But I just think that they're going to fall short. with it. The Grizzlies are going to fall short in this one. Even though that they know that if they lose this game, they're going to be down 2-0. I think when you look at what the Lakers have right now, uh, the Lakers seem to just be getting to their shot, getting to their spots and knocking down their shots. I think that Austin Reeves has been very solid in the one game that they played so far. Rui Hachimura. Now, I don't believe that he's going to have damn near a 30-point performance going into this game because I think that the Grizzlies are going to make an adjustment against him. But I still think that he could be viable and he could drop somewhere around 10 to 15 points. I do think this is a game where maybe we see LeBron James really take the helm here. Because uh, back in game one, I'm not saying that LeBron was passive. It's just that when you have role players stepping up in huge ways like Austin Reeves and Rui Hachimura, and then you got AD who's out there getting seven blocks and over 20 points to go along with it. You know, they didn't need LeBron to be in God mode and drop 35, 40 points. I think this may be one of those games where we see LeBron get 30, maybe like 32 points, definitely have more of an impact on this game where he kind of takes this game by himself. But I still think LeBron could go out there and put up like 30 points, eight or nine assists, and get probably six or seven boards. And then if AD, as long as he stays healthy, I, I'm i pretty sure that shoulder stinger is probably nothing to deal with. As 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 we know, Kev, AD is always brittle. You never know what you're going to get from him when it comes to his injury status. But I think if he has a similar type of performance against 
the Grizzlies that he had in game one, I think it'll be enough to get the Lakers over the top. It's just when it comes to the Lakers, the Lakers are going to have to figure out how they're going to have to deal with Jaron Jackson Jr. They had no answer for him last game. So overall, I think it's going to be a fun game, but I'm going to give the edge to the Lakers. I think they win a close one. I think it's going to be probably around a three to five point um, margin of victory for them. And I think they go back to LA up 2-0 in the series. I'm going to go the opposite way. I got Memphis. I don't think LA nearly has a successful night from their supporting cast as they did in game one. Like you said, I don't think Rui goes for no damn near 30. I think Austin Reeves is going to get a couple of different looks defensively to kind of shut him down. LeBron James is going to get his numbers. We all know that. Anthony Davis is going to get his numbers. That's not a question. Uh, it's just a matter of how Memphis will combat the potential of John Morant not playing. We saw what they were able to do without him last season. And they played very efficient. They actually had a well above 500 record when John Morant was not in the starting lineup. So we know that Memphis is not scared to play without him. It's a matter of can Desmond Bain step up, can Dylan Bumass Brooks step up, and a number of the rest of the supporting cast. Jaron Jackson Jr. showed that he can carry the load offensively on his side as well as hold the anchor down on the, the defensive side as well. So again, it's more so of I don't think the Lakers will, the Lakers will have the same success from a shooting percentage-wise, and I don't think that the Grizzlies are going to have as bad as a night. But... If LeBron gets his 30, AD gets his 25 and 10, you live with that. You just got to make sure that that supporting cast is not available to do what they did. And if D'Angelo Russell ends up popping off for his 2025 plus, then maybe it's a game. But safely and soundly, I think Memphis wins this game. I'm not going to say marginally. I'm not going to say a two, three point win. I think they win this probably between anywhere from like eight to 10 points. They're at home. They're one of the best teams in the NBA. They have a bad taste in their mouth with how game one ended. I think that this group rallies together and finds a way to get it done. So I, I need to ask. If Jod does not play in this game, do you still have the same outcome? Uh, I think it'll be a closer victory, but I got Memphis winning no matter what. Like I said, they have a winning record without John Morant. They have a successful formula to do it without him. He's missed games while suspended, while injured, whatever the case may be. This team probably does a little bit better, in fact, without him. Maybe not from an overall athleticism standpoint, but from moving the ball, from a defensive mindset, they are just a little bit better without him. So again, I think that without him, they will find a way to still get it done. But like I said, a little bit closer. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is if they if they don't have jaw in this game, they just have to limit their turnovers. Yep. Because if you're giving those extra possessions back to the Lakers, they could use that against them. So Exactly. Yeah. And I think when it comes to ball movement, I think that they'll be able to move the ball effectively. It just comes down to whether or not that they turn the ball over. Because if you're giving those potential extra points to the Lakers, you know, the Lakers already have momentum to begin with after winning that game one, which kept that we did not see happening. Obviously, we didn't see Ja going down with that injury. But if the Lakers go up 2-0 in that series, I'm not saying it's, it's gonna over. Be, it's going to be scary. It, I still think that Memphis could potentially come back in that series, even if the Lakers were up 2-0. But yeah. it's going to be a bigger uphill battle to get back into that series for sure. Agreed. But uh, with that said, we are going to transition to the next game that's going to happen on Thursday night. Or not Thursday night. Excuse me. That's happening tonight, Wednesday night. Uh, that's going to be the Heat in the box. Obviously, when it comes to the Heat, uh, they will not have Tyler Hero in this game. He broke two of his fingers. And when it comes to Giannis, Giannis is essentially a game-time decision. Uh, the last time I checked that on the injury report, he was questionable. Uh, that was an upgrade uh, from earlier I'm in doubtful. the day. or Yeah, so uh, we'll see whether or not that he goes. Kev, th this game is going to be kind of a tough one to pick mm -hmm. just because of the availability of Giannis. But I, I got to ask you, who do you think is going to win uh, that matchup between the Heat and the Bucks in game two. 
Well, I think Miami has the potential to win this, but I'm going to pick the Bucks. Wesley Matthews was ruled out. One of their 3 and D players, someone that can knock down shots in the corner. Even if Giannis is ready to go, unless he's at somewhere of 70 to 80%, his physicality, his ability to rebound the basketball, maybe even his ability to back people down because it is a lower back injury, he may not even be able to post up. So I don't know how efficient he is going to be, uh, I guess how efficient he's going to be able to be. And then when you talk about the supporting cast, we all know that Chris Middleton has his highs, has his lows. Um, if he can have another 30-point performance, I think that that gives him a good chance. But again, it's it's more so of what the supporting cast can bring you. What can Brooke Lopez bring you? What can Bobby Portis bring you? What can Drew Holiday do? They all had pretty solid games despite Giannis being injured. And they still lost. Now, from that, I will say Miami shot 60% from the three-point line in that first game. That is not happening again. If my numbers are correctly in the regular season, they are the 25th best offense. They had a, a Hall of Fame historic, like, Jesus-giving night. <laughs> And no Tyler Hero. I don't think they're going to have another hot streak like that from behind the arc, especially as, you know, if Giannis does, in fact, play. So we'll see what happens. If Giannis doesn't play, I can see Miami making this 2-0. But despite that, again, I don't think Miami's going to have the efficient night that they had in Game 1. And I think that the Bucks win without or with Giannis Antetokounmpo. Yeah, I agree with you. I think the Bucs are going to be able to tie this series at 1-1 apiece. Obviously, when it comes to Giannis' status, we don't really know. Um how effective he would be if he were able to play because Kev, there could be a potential that if Giannis were to play that he may have to miss a decent amount of time while trying to work through that lower body injury. I think it's a tailbone injury. If I remember correctly, yeah, probably like a boost coccyx or something like that. Yeah. But you know, I think the one thing that the, the Bucks are going to focus on in this game too, is they're going to have to step up the defensive intensity just because when you look at game one, Miami got out of the gate, extremely hot and they never looked back and i do agree that when it comes to the bucks i think they're going to be able to limit the effectiveness that jimmy butler had in game one that obviously tyler hero went down with that injury but you know you could look at other guys like bam out of bio bam i thought was extremely effective in that game one i don't know if he's going to be as effective in game two but i just think overall when it comes to what the bucks are going to bring from a defensive intensity perspective i think it's gonna be at a higher level i think this game is actually going to be a little bit more gritty and milwaukee has done this in the past before where throughout the regular season they could score at will but there have been some playoff games that they have won where the games are kind of tough to watch they're not very exciting but they're defensive minded they're gritty and they end up winning some of these games by three or four points and both teams struggle to get to 100 points i think this could be one of those games the biggest thing is that they have to slow Jimmy Butler down. If they do that, they hold them to a relatively pedestrian night. I think that they could get this series at 1-1 apiece. But at the same time, you know, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, these guys are going to have to step up. I don't know if Chris Middleton is going to drop another 30-point performance like he did in Game 1. Now, granted, he looked pretty solid out there. I know he's been dealing with a bunch of injuries this year. He's missed a bunch of time. But if he could give you another 25, potentially 30-point performance to go along with what Drew Holiday can give you, that may be enough. You know, it depends on what the role players provide too because behind the three-point line, Kev, they were atrocious in game one. I do believe that the Bucks will have a better three-point night on Wednesday night than they did in game one. But I think if the Bucks get this win, I think it's going to be a guttier performance than what we're typically accustomed to 
with the Bucks throughout the regular season. I think this series goes back to Miami 1-1 apiece. But it all comes down to Giannis. I, I think if Giannis is in there and provides a spark, you know, I definitely think that they can win this by probably 10 points. If he doesn't play, man, this is going to be like a two or three point game when it's all said and done in favor of the Bucks. That's how I have it playing out. Yeah, not much else to say. I'm not talking about that Minnesota-Denver game. That was damn near I, a 30-point blowout, honestly. So, I'm not doing it. It's just the Nuggets, bro. It's the Nuggets yeah, all day. Nuggets, that's a sweep. That's a sweep. Anthony Edwards is hurt. Rudy Gobert is already probably tarnished relationships in the locker room for his second straight team. I, I don't trust him. I don't like him. And again, when you have one of the MVP favorites, Jamal Murray's back, Michael Porter Jr. in the supporting cast of the Nuggets. Barring any major injury... I think that the Nuggets sweep comfortably and cleanly. Yeah. So, I mean, the T-Wolves we'll give them credit. Yeah, the, the T-Wolves made, made their mark in the play-in, but that was pretty much going to be it. So, uh, but with that said, we are going to transition to our final topic, and that will be uh, Tua Tagovailoa. So, Tua was at the, was at the press. I forget the name. The, the press, podium. Podium. Thank you. Jesus Christ. That's the second time I screwed that up. Uh, Tua took the podium. Um, as of right now, the Dolphins and a bunch of NFL teams are in their offseason uh, training programs at this point. And he was asked about just his status uh, going into this year and whether or not the retirement was a real option uh, based on all the concussions that he had last year. And Kev, I don't remember the number of games that he missed off the top of my head, but it was a decent amount of games that he missed due to Several concussions that he sustained. I know that he missed the last couple games uh, just simply being in concussion protocol. And that was despite the fact that the Dolphins were still actively trying to make the playoffs. And had they missed the playoffs, which they didn't, they ended up making the wild card. uh, It would be to on that concussion protocol to finish out the year. But no, at this point, Tua is expected to be the starter for the Dolphins going into this upcoming year. But the talks of retirement were definitely in his mind. Uh, over this offseason. So, Kev, i got to kick this one to you. What you make of Tua's comments about him contemplating retirement as this offseason has been ongoing? Not surprised. I mean, the man suffered two, if not three, concussions, missed four games, got knocked out of one of them. Uh, I, when you talk about your brain, CTE, the damage that people have been able to see due to science and the development of technology, at his age, 24, 25, whatever it is, and him to have as many injuries as he's had this fall, thus far in his career, you can recover from shoulder, the ankle, the knee. You know, some people kind of drag it on out, even though they're consistently injury prone. But when you talk about your head, I can't blame him. I can't judge him. I'm not going to fault him for contemplating it. I'm sure him and his family had very deep discussions. And I, when you hear somebody contemplate retirement at that age, you have to think, A, are they fed up? B, are they exhausted? Or just C, do they think they can even do it anymore? Do they have the physical capability to perform at the highest level? Look at Andrew Luck. He is a prime example for a situation like this. Retired at 29 years old, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but could not escape the injury bug. I'm, pre- I'm, I'm almost positive Andrew Luck had a concussion or two throughout his seven or eight-year career. But what I'm looking at is, or should I say six to seven-year career because he was also injured for one, can... Can he bounce back? Does he want to bounce back? Does he want to go through the rehab process? Is he scared? We're talking about two to three concussions in one season where one of them, he ended like, 
with his fingers all curled up. Like, that's one of the, I was telling Kyle earlier, it's one of the scariest concussions I've ever seen. So, no, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that that's a wise decision to at least have that discussion and be open to it. If he would have retired, I would have understood completely. But him giving it a go, trusting the system, trying to become healthy, and again, just giving football another chance, I think that is, you know, in his best interest, especially in a contract year. But when you're talking about generational wealth, millions of dollars that he's already received, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like he wouldn't be good for the rest of his life if he didn't retire right now. But God forbid, if it were to happen again and he were to get concussed to the point where he has to miss a multitude of games this upcoming season, I think then that's probably going to be when Tua hangs it up. Because if he can't avoid the injury bug, let alone a concussion protocol, the writing's on the wall, you know, the signs are in the cards, whatever the saying is, Tua is on the borderline of ending his career at a young age due to injury, and I don't blame him not one single bit. Kev, I'm with you 100%. I don't blame him whatsoever for mulling retirement, especially with the amount of concussions that he had this past year. I think, honestly, anybody would. You know, whether it be a quarterback or any position on the football field. And when you sustain that many concussions in one year, there could potentially be some unfortunate long-term effects that he could suffer just based on, like you said, the the CTE side of things where you just see this degenerative brain function that comes along with playing a long time in football, whether that be professionally or just playing football throughout your entire life. So, no, I don't blame him whatsoever. I think when it comes to the next couple years, as long as Tua stays healthy, you know, the biggest thing is he's going to have to find a way to be able to protect himself when he's potentially getting sacked. Because let's face it, you know, I know Tua dealt with a bunch of concussions last year, but I think this was something that he was mentioning in his uh, press conference with the reporters over the last couple of days is that he was learning on how to, you know, properly go down when there's an opposing pass rush. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are some occasions where Tua feels like a sack is imminent, that he's just going to fall down to the ground and not take any additional hits to the head. Just because last year, you know, we have the tape to prove it. Just, you know, whenever he got hit, I mean, he got destroyed on some of those hits. I, I remember the one hit, I think it was against Buffalo. I could have the game wrong, but he, he got popped gets back up and then he was like just stumbling as he was walking to get towards the huddle. You know, and then eventually he got picked up by his teammates and then he, I think he was escor- escorted off the field to be put in the concussion protocol. But you know, when you're talking about long-term health, you know, at this age, he's only in his mid 20s. We're not talking about somebody who's in their mid 30s and retirement is something that they've been thinking about just because the end of their career is here. Two is just getting his career started. And the fact that he's already having these discussions at such an early age, it really puts into perspective how significant last year must have been with the amount of injuries that he sustained. So I, I'm of the mindset that I think that Tua has plenty left in the tank from a physical standpoint, just because physically, like you know, he's essentially in the prime of his life. It's just when it comes to the head injuries, that's something that you have to just deal with over the next couple of years unfortunately and you know I know they do a lot to protect the quarterback in today's game but you know that doesn't mean you're not going to get hit in the head and unfortunately in Tua's case he got the bare brunt of it last year so no if he were to retire early simply just because of the amount of 
head injuries that he sustained, I wouldn't blame him one bit. You, you have to focus on your long-term health if it just becomes that critical of an issue. But I, I think knowing what he was saying at the podium, I still think that he has the internal drive. I still believe that you know he has the potential to make a lot of money in his NFL career. And like Kev said, bring some generational wealth to his family that he is solely responsible in trying to attain. And I think if he goes out there and performs at the best of his abilities, I think that he could be able to do that. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a risk and reward here. You know, the reward is definitely worth the risk, but you know, at some point the risk just may be too high to deal with. And the fact that we're having a conversation like this with Tua in his mid twenties, it is scary knowing the, the landscape of the situation right now. So hopefully we get to say Tua play at a high level. Hopefully these concussion issues that he dealt with are only focused on last year and not a constant trend moving forward. Because if they do, if this is a lingering issue over the next couple of years, I wouldn't be surprised within the next two to three years that Tua would hang it up. But hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully we get to see Tua play at a high level for the foreseeable future and make the most of his NFL career because I think we would all definitely be happy to see him play at a high level, whether it's with the Miami Dolphins or potentially another team down the line whenever that could happen. But overall, I don't blame him one bit when it comes to this concussion issue and him mulling retirement. I'm with him 100%. Yeah, I can't really tell somebody what to do with their life, tell somebody what to do with their medical decisions. And yeah. it's a sport, like everybody says, this is a game for people's entertainment. If he's not happy, if he's not healthy, at that point, it's not entertaining to see somebody consistently injured, hurting themselves, and jeopardizing their future. So we'll kind of leave it at that. But other than... Good thing we're ending the episode, because Sassy McSasser pants over here, my dog, is currently uh, getting cranky. So you, you, know, well, you guys can't... Yeah, you guys can't see him. He's yeah. kind of like wedged. At the end, at the end, he might need. He might need to go outside. He, he might need to do that. He might. He's giving me that. So or he's guys, with or he's well, I know he's definitely hungry. But you know, with that being said, guys, we're gonna wrap it up due to a sassy man over here, sassy four-legged creature. We appreciate the support everywhere we've gotten it: Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Even though we're struggling on those numbers for whatever reason, we're like we're like excommunicated from the YouTube algorithm the last three it's, days, man. Our it's whatever. Views, I'm not. Man, I'm not no. worried about. It. I'm not worried no, about it. No, I am, I am not happy. YouTube, fix your shit. Damn it. <laughs> I'm not worried about I, it. We'll be fine. We'll bounce back. But uh, again, sincerely, we appreciate the support no matter where we've gotten it from. And uh, with the NBA playoffs still here, the NHL playoffs just started yesterday. Plenty of conversations we're going to be having on Sunday when we get back to it. But like I said, that wraps it up for us. And we will see you guys again come Sunday. Yeah. Once again, thank you guys for tuning in. And we'll see you guys later. Not this week. Next week. But take it easy, you guys. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your host for the, the Candle, Candle Power, Power Hour. Hour. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session. 
free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electric Cast production. Electric Cast.